Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the RSA. It's great to see everyone in the room tonight. We're here with us this evening, and to know that we're being joined by many of you watching from home. So hello to everyone joining us. I hope you're settled in comfortably for what I know will be a terrific hour of conversation ahead. My name is Alex Lucas. I'm joint head of the public events here at the RSA. And I'm here just to say a, br a few brief words about the format of the evening ahead. And also to thank RSA fellows who make gatherings like this one possible. We're truly grateful to our community for their support in making all our events free and accessible to audiences the world over. If you're an RSA fellow watching this evening, thank you. And if not, you can head to our website now to find out more about the RSA and how you can get involved. Also, if you're watching online and not yet subscribed to our YouTube channel, do take a moment to click the bell now to make sure you get notifications of all our upcoming live stream events and replay videos. RSA notice is over. It's my great pleasure to introduce our guest speakers this evening, the brilliant Michelle Moore and Nova Reed. Michelle is one of the most influential women in UK sport. Yep, leave and a, it. <laughs> and a sought-after leadership coach and consultant. Her new book, Real Wins, is the basis for our conversation this evening. And we're truly delighted that Nova Reed is here to lead the conversation for us. Nova is author of the powerful and widely praised book, The Good Ally. If you're watching online, you'll find more information about Michelle and Nova's work in the chat, as well as links to buy their books from our friends at Foils. Everyone here in the great room will have a chance to get their books signed after the event, so do join us in the foyer later to meet the authors and say hello. The format for this evening's event is that Michelle will set the scene for us with an introductory reading from Real Wings before she and Nova dive into conversation together. There'll be an opportunity for you to join the discussion by sharing your thoughts, responses, and questions for Michelle and Nova in the YouTube live chat or on social media using the Twitter hashtag RealWins. Please engage in the conversation with empathy and respect. We're not going to shy away from challenging issues and experiences this evening, but we're looking forward to creating the conditions for what I'm sure will be a hugely positive, empowering, and inspiring exchange. So we're grateful to all of you for entering into the conversation in that spirit. So thank you again for being with us, and especially to Nova for hosting from here on in. And without further ado, please join me in welcoming the author of Real Wins, Redefining Race, Leadership and Success, Michelle Moore. Great to see so many friends and family in the room and online on YouTube. I just want to show off my outfit, people. <laughs> my cousin designed this for me, and I'm very proud of it. So a very warm welcome to everybody. I don't take it for granted that you've given up your time to be here today, so a heartfelt thanks. So I'm going to read a bit from my book, which is my treasured possession. I call her a she, so when you hear me refer to her, you know what I'm talking about. So here we go. I was tired, really tired. That kind of bone-weary lethargy that is a legacy of exhaustion from those who have come before me. I'd just finished a 45-minute presentation to around 700 police officers, though it could have actually been a 1,000. I was the last speaker on their Diversity Awareness Day. In truth, I hadn't wanted to be there. In reality, it was the place that I needed to be. The previous day, I'd struggled to make sense of the issues that I'd wanted to convey in a meaningful way that went beyond the same old diversity rhetoric, which I can't stand. I wanted it to be powerful. I'd called my brother Jean-Pierre for advice. He told me to make it personal. Make it about you, Michelle. Go all in. And that was a killer line that I needed to hear. To be honest, I was avoiding putting it into action. I was nervous 
because I knew that the presentation would take a lot out of me. As a black woman, the emotional, intellectual, and physical labor involved in revealing personal testimony to move, to challenge, to inspire, comes at a cost of our well-being. As I finished my last sentence, there was a moment of quiet, stunned silence before the polite applause. I've come to expect this now, when expounding hard truths, calling out injustice, my presentation was hard-hitting. It asked challenging questions of the police, both as individuals and as an organisation. I'd made it personal. Why did my 10-year-old nephew think it was normal for his dad to be stopped and searched? Why had so little changed in the police force in the decades since Stephen Lawrence's death in 1993? I'd shown them images of Serena Williams, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, black athletes standing up for the pursuit of equality. I'd played them emotive and disturbing videos showing the harsh realities of living in 21st century Britain as a black person, overrepresented in the criminal justice system, in mental health institutions, and school exclusions. I knew I was leaving an impression. I could feel the tension. I felt the heat. A sea of white faces stared back at me from an audience that I could see included just one black woman. Afterwards, she approached me, tears brimming in her eyes, but not falling, such was her willpower. She expressed her heartfelt thanks, explaining that I'd said words that she couldn't say. This often happens where there are lone black folk. You become a party of two, if you're lucky, and I always offer a listening ear in those snatched moments because we all want to be seen, heard, and understood, and never more so than people that look like us. It took me weeks to recover from that presentation. John Carlos, the African-American sprinter, who at the 1968 Mexico Olympic Games, who alongside Tommy Smith, raised his fist in solidarity with the Olympic Project for Human Rights against the oppression of black and brown people worldwide, was once asked, how can athletes prompt change without jeopardizing their careers? He replied, they can't. You have to lay it all on the line. The following chapters will unrefutably confront you with the truths about the realities of racial injustice and oppression. But they also contain hope and positivity. My message is grounded in optimism, for individual and collective transformation, and will provide you with concrete and practical tips to make your difference in the world. That's why I've called the book Real Wins. As an athlete, I love to win. I value winning for so many reasons. That sense of achievement, the fulfillment, the intrinsic satisfaction to say I won. Yet as a leader, I've learned that a real win isn't defined by the best of or even the winner. It's defined by the lesson learned, by placing value on difference, on evolution, on understanding the world from a different point of view from your own, by holding the opposing tensions of viewpoints while still honoring yours and others. It's only then that we get to create and achieve personal and collective transformation. In figuring out the important lessons and having integrity, we can recognize that we are all in need of dignity and empathy. And through our leadership journeys, we get to choose how we respond to this in an ever-changing global community. Real Wins is about grasping, grappling, and overcoming fear and self-doubt to try something new it's about conquering your own self-limiting beliefs, to find new ways to, to define your own version of success and hold yourself accountable to that. When we set our own race, we can define our own boundaries for personal and professional growth and then be at peace with either losing or failure. It's about those times we do lose and yet choose to be undefeated. I'm invested in helping others achieve their personal bests in, in whatever form that might take. 
I want people to learn from my harsh lessons, to be able to take their shot, make their comeback from being a set down, run their race, beat their score, complete their double-twisting, record-breaking, Simone Biles somersaults, and ultimately reach their truest potential. Was it all right, people? Ooh. Yeah? Did you like it? You know my style. I'm informal. We need to make it informal, right? Welcome. It's really good to see uh, real humans and not digital, two-dimensional people. And I want to start, Michelle, by saying huge congratulations. You've written a whole damn book. I know, right? A whole book. Yeah, and yeah. I, I truly believe it is underestimated all that it commands of you to put everything of yourself and every inch of your very being in the lessons you've learned in a book out there for everyone to um, either love or critique. Um, so congratulations. Thank you, Nova. I would love to know, I'm going to start with some... <coughs> what has been some of the most beautiful responses you've had about Real Wins? Oh, that's a great question. Mm -hmm. Um, we did rehearse this, but that wasn't in there. You're clever, <laughs> clever. Uh, I think for me, you know, in the book, I talk about how we define success and it's our own individual personal viewpoint on that. And absolutely, the book is doing really well. It's been shortlisted. It's one of the finalists in the Business Book Awards, you know, for 2022, which is a big deal. And one of the things about writing a book is people want reviews, they want as many books to be sold. And one of the paragraphs that I wrote in my introduction when I first did my first draft was about how I define success for the book. And actually, although those things are really nice, to me, what's important and what and the most sublime moments are the individual conversations that I get to have with extraordinary everyday people. Mm. So I took my book into Brent Cross Shopping Centre uh, as, a, as a part of my media campaign with the fabulous Clear Channel, I had a digital billboard, which was incredible. And I, I know we'll talk about that later. But I got to just hang out with everybody. And I went to, it was in 21 cities and towns up and down the country. And I literally took my book and I talked to people about the themes in my book, about leadership, about race, about success. And it was just so beautiful. And the amount of strangers that have reached out to me, and you would have had loads of this, Nova, on you know, social media, and even in the street, have said, your book really touched me. Your book resonated with me. I felt like there was, I could see some of myself in that story. So nice. there were sublime moments, and then like walking around the corner and seeing my digital billboard, my big old face, <laughs> and, and a copy of the book, you know, on the Chiswick flyover. Um, it was just like a really strange feeling and I never thought that I would be on a billboard up and down the country. And so there are these sublime moments that kind of, you have to pinch yourself when you're in it to say actually, this is achieving something that I didn't think was, was ever a part of my journey. So mm. there are those moments, there are many more, but I think those are the things that stand out for me that it makes a difference to people mm. and it's not just, here for a quick flash. This is a book that kind of is enduring. Uh, I talk about that in the last chapter about you can pick this up and put this down again. Yeah. And um, people are using it in that way. So yeah, those are a couple of my highlights. <laughs> Perfect, thank you. Um, did writing Real Wins change you? And if so, how? I think the thing about writing a book, everyone's got a book in them. Everybody's got a book in them because we've all got our life stories and uh, people are just ruefully like shaking their heads. But you do, everybody has a book in them. And I think for me, what it does is it gives you this luxury of being able to look back on your life mm. and place a bit of intellect on it, right? You know, it's like, oh, now I know some stuff nearing 50. Um, I can actually look back and, and find moments in my life which are really determining life moments. And there are stories that I share where, you know, I think, wow, these, these white men have had power over the decisions that have governed some of the, 
the way in which my life has gone. And so you kind of have the, you, you're afforded that, that space to look back in a, in a different way. And I tell a story about, you know, we were brownies. We were with this, like, this organisation where we were, you know, we were just, there were all these subliminal messages that we, we didn't really belong. And you start to make sense of those things mm. that happened to you in your past. So I think that it does give you that time to look back. And then I, I was very fortunate that I interviewed international athletes, business leaders, and you get into understanding their journey. And I always remember um, interviewing Jeanette Kwachi, and she was talking to me, and she wrote the foreword, and she's an amazing broadcaster, you know, a former sprinter and Olympian. And she was talking to me about how she conquered her fears. And I was thinking about how I could talk and support the people that I coach and mentor with some of the advice that she's given around externalizing her fear. And she had this, she was overcome with, with nerves with one of her big races at the Indoor World Champs many years ago. And her coach got her to write the newspaper headline for the next day. And all it said was, Quachi breaks the British record. And it just released her from her fears. It released her from the anxiety of that moment. And she was able to externalize that fear by journaling it out on a newspaper heading, something very simple. And obviously she went on to get the British record and she became really successful. So there are these like little tidbits of gold dust throughout the book where I've got to, to talk to amazing people. I know I digressed, but it's you know that's right. my style. It's all and right. I just have to say, Nova is amazing. <laughs> Nova is incredible. When I had the vision for this event, Nova was the person that I wanted to interview me. So even though I'm, I am the superstar tonight, you uh, are always. Nova <laughs> is, it, I've been inspired by Nova in so many ways. And I mentioned my billboard campaign. And I first got the idea from that. It was a part of my vision, but I first got the idea from that because Nova was on a billboard. And I saw her and I was like, the good ally is on a billboard. Nova Reed is stood next to it. And she just looked majestic. And I was like, I want some of that. I want, and I didn't know how it was going to happen. I just wrote it on my vision board. And I just let the world take over. And so you really inspired me with that, with your work. And when I did that reading and I was talking about the intellectual and emotional and physical labour that it, it takes from us as anti-racism educators, I pay respect and homage to you. So I'm really grateful oh, that you yeah. are asking me these questions today, because honestly, somebody else wouldn't get the same response. Uh, I, you know, thank you. And, you know, what you've just spoken about is how important representation is, because you would never have even thought about a billboard, because never. why would you? Why would it be in your, in your sightline if you haven't seen other people who are doing similar things like you? Um, and it's that power. And also, I don't like the word manifestation, because <laughs> I think it's been co-opted and appropriated. But just in what Jeanette was doing, in, in just having that externalisation, writing that down, whether or not she wanted to achieve it or not, I assume she did, but yeah. in, it's, there's something very important about imagination and, and believing in things that haven't come to pass yet, believing that they're possible, and I, I'm going to bring it back round to that towards the end. Um, would you like to share more about the writing process for you? Yeah, if, if you want me to, yeah. Well, um, yeah. To. No, no, I will. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think the writing process, I mean, for, for any author, it's, it's a challenge, isn't it? Yeah. it? It's just, you know, like, I think I talk about it in the, in the book. When, when we are challenged with new experiences which take us out of our comfort zone, we have to kind of make decisions about whether or not we're prepared enough to be uncomfortable enough to achieve the success that we dream of. And when, when I was approached to write this book, I was like, why? I thought it was a bit of junk mail. I was like, why are they asking me to write a book? Like, I don't understand. I mean, I don't really have time to write a book. Um, and then COVID hit and junk life, 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 um, yeah, life um, kind of mm. took over. And I, and I, I had enough actually self-efficacy about me and that's something that I think my sport gave me like you know sport is one of the the great things that it does is it enables you to kind of turn up each week even if you've lost at the at the races at the weekend you've yeah. lost it but then you turn up to train right in the hope that you're going to win the next race 
And I think I had enough about it. it built that resilience in me, and life had kind of given me many experiences as well, to be able to think that, actually, I've done a few dissertations in my life, I've got a master's, I, you know, I've written some educational materials. There shouldn't be any reason why I can't write a book. Yep. It's just whether or not I'm going to be able to apply myself to write this book. And... You know, I did cite myself out. I listened to podcasts by Zadie Smith and Bernadine Evarista, and I was like, there's no way, you know. <laughs> I'm just, I had serious, like, my words are never going to be good enough. Yeah. But then I just, I drew a line, and I just decided I'm either going to do this or, or I'm not. And I gave myself deadlines. I kept to the deadlines. I know how to apply myself because I have the discipline and the focus of an athlete. Yep. So I still see myself as an athlete, although I'm kind of old and don't make it around the track anymore. So... For me, it was about that application of a sports mindset of applying myself to a goal and making sure that I kept myself accountable to that and, and kind of taking inspiration from others and talking to others, but giving myself permission to write. Mm. So I'd write like pages and they would all be rubbish yes. and there'd be like one line that's good, you know? Yes. You know, that, that line is about, you know, when we do lose, but we choose to be undefeated. Yes. That took about five pages. Yeah. And I think that's a really good line, right? Yeah, yeah. So the fact is, I think that you have to make yourself uncomfortable if you're in it for the long run. Yeah, and giving yourself permission to not be good at something. Because yeah. how else do you learn and grow? So giving yourself permission to not be perfect. I love that. I'm going to be cheeky and ask you another um, impromptu question. Um, you say you love sport, but not all sport. What sport do you hate? <laughs> well, you know, it's a really interesting question, though. You know, when I don't see myself mm. reflected in sport, when I see rowing, when I see cycling, when I see uh, horse riding, when I see yeah. sports that are really exclusive, I have a problem with them, yeah. you know? And um, I get invited to places now, which is something that didn't used to happen. It's really interesting that the deals and the business that goes on in corporate boxes and, you know, I'm now part of some of that, some of those spaces in a, in a different way. And so I think for me, it's always about trying to see if there's representation. And today I was um, hosting an event for Sporting Equals about the lack of representation mm. and the way um, race equality is, it was, called, it was called the state of the sector, about race equality in sport and physical activity. And it's one of the things that, you know, the, the minister was talking about equality and sport and the, the commitment to race, uh, getting racism out of sport. And I'm like, okay, well, let's see how that manifests in terms of the representation of black and brown athletes and all of our elite GB squads. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for our black-led organisations who do not receive funding yeah. out of your own research? So when I say I don't like all sports, I love the mentality, I love athletes, I love sport, but I am, you know, frustrated and angered by the fact that sport isn't accessible to everybody yeah. and that's what why I use my platforms as a speaker and as a you know somebody who asks challenging questions and when people see that I'm the host of an event they're like oh no that means she's gonna want to have a real conversation and I could see that that's what the sports minister was doing today but I see that that's part of my success that's a part of me redefining how I see success these yes. are organizations that I would have pitched myself to years ago as a consultant that just weren't interested. Yeah. And I'm like, right, okay, how can I redefine this narrative and still ask the challenging questions, but ask them on a platform as an author, yeah. as somebody that has to be taken seriously? Yeah, and be heard. But, you know, what, frust what frustrates me about that is you had value and credibility before, and it's only, you know, now that you're an author. And there's, there's, there's lots to unpack around that um, that I find frustrating. But nevertheless... You have the platform now, and you will be listened to in a different way, um, which is powerful. So I want to talk a little bit about sports activism. I, I loved reading about um, the story of some of the interviews that you were doing, uh, particularly with Tommy Smith, and hearing more about how... I mean, we all see it in how sports activism reaches the masses in ways that other types of activism doesn't or can't. Um, the powerful salute that Tommy Smith made when he won the 200 metres uh, gold medal in the 1968 Olympics, which was the same year that Dr Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated um, and stood on the podium and made the Black Power solution. And that would have been... That had a cost. 
um, there was rife civil unrest, and we, we romanticise Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. now. Um, well, the white majority romanticises him, but at the time he was one of the, if not the most hated man in America. And so to do that in that year on that podium would have taken extraordinary courage, and there is a cost. So Colin Kaepernick, another one taking the knee and then not being able to play in the NFL... And so I really want to talk about in, in, in being and in, in us encouraging organisations, individuals to be anti-racist and to take on activism in whatever way that means to you, in whatever capacity you have. How do you navigate the cost that comes with this? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think at the first, when I, in my, my reading, I, that was the line that I ended with. It's like, you know, what Tommy talks about. You, you have to kind of go all in. You, it comes at a cost, but that's a part of the sacrifice. And I had the, the real honour of, of interviewing Tommy Smith on the 50th anniversary of the... the yeah, the 50th anniversary of the salute. And one of the things that he talked about is, you know, what people don't realise is that that salute was actually the culmination of a year's worth of work under, you know, a part of the Olympic Project for Human Rights where they were trying to get all of the athletes to boycott the Games. Yeah. And they were unsuccessful in those efforts. And so the salute, they didn't even know that they were going to do it. Just only moments before did they realise that they were going to do it. And he tells this powerful story about when he met with Dr Martin Luther King. And he was... Tommy and kind of John would kind of deciding what it was that they wanted to do and how they were going to use this platform. Because remember, first of all, they had to, he had to win the race. Of course. They had to make, they had to make, it, they had to make it to the medal st yeah, stand. Yeah. And um, Tommy had a bit of a hamstring problem. Oh. So, you know, as an athlete, I kind of got into some of the detail of it. I was like, how is she, you know? So the point was, is that he, it was, and he spoke to Dr. Martin Luther King and, and King said to him, well, what you have to realise is the impact of one, one single event, one single protest can have this ripple effect in ways that you have no idea. Yeah. And that made such a big impact on Tommy Smith and John Carlos. And they were so committed to this that, you know, when I got to sit with him, it was honestly, it was like one of the highlights of my life. Wow. I have to say, I had, I've had a picture of Tommy Smith and John Carlos on my wall for like 20 odd years. Mm. And when they were coming to town, I was a trustee for the Running Me Trust and we were hosting them and it was in Manchester. And I was a bit like overwhelmed. They had all these and they were doing, they were doing a tour of London and they had like these big time journalists interviewing Tommy and there was little old me. Like, I mean, I'm not little, I'm six foot one. <laughs> and I was like, I don't have any of those credentials of these big personalities. But what I had was that complete intrinsic connection to yeah. Tommy and what he represented. And he felt that I had a special T-shirt made with Tommy Smith written on it. I made sure everybody knew about it. And he loved it. And we sat down and we had the most beautiful mm. conversation. And one of the lessons that Tommy Smith talked about was the redemptive power of sacrifice. Yeah. That at the heart of all activism, the heart of being a change maker, the heart of trying to agitate for change, as much as people want to call you troublemaker or activist or whatever negative label, is love. Of it's course. absolute, this pure adoration for love and for our common humanity. Mm. And so he was just full of such wisdom. And I was so inspired by his greatness, by his, his just glorious spirit. And, you know, I think about the fact that he laid the, the path, he laid the ground, he provided the inspiration for the contemporary sports activism mm. that we see today. And I know that he is kind of in connection with some of the, the, the kind of well-known athletes from Colin Kaepernick to Serena and to Venus. And I think that when we see activists and the retribution that comes, yes. what happens as a cost of what they're doing in standing up for... for not just themselves, but for others, serious consequences. Yeah. I always have to talk about Eniola Aluko, who, mm. you know, in my book, I talk about her sacrifice, standing up to the, the football establishment, calling out racial injustice, and doing it in a way that's so pioneering as a dark-skinned black woman, as a woman that was making a statement to say, this does not, it's not going to run. 
you know, we have to make a, a draw a line. And it went all the way to the Department for Culture and Media and Sport. And so that came at a cost to NEO, that yeah. Lucro. She never played for England again. You know, the emotional well-being element, the, the media vitriol. You know, so we have to be understand the, the kinds of things that happen as a consequence. And I've been fortunate enough to mentor and coach some of the athletes, the GB athletes, in response to the racist murder of George Floyd and yeah. in the, the heightened time of the Black Lives Matter movement. And these young athletes are being looked to for their leadership, for their voices around big, important, serious issues. And actually, some of them are just developing their own consciousness. Yeah, of course. And so the work that I do with them is to identify what is the part that you play Right? In the book, my favourite chapter. Oh, yes. We, yes. My favourite chapter. Segway is in there. Identity and activism. <laughs> and in that, in that chapter, I talk about the different ways we can all tap into our change maker in our activists, whatever you want to call it. When we're, when we're doing that personal work of our personal growth, of that self-awareness, of understanding what we bring to the world, how we can be of service to others, we have to understand that, you know, there are bits of us that are better at it than others. You know, there are introversion, there are introversion parts to me, people. There are extroversion <laughs> parts. And I know that a part of what I do is a positive disruptor. Yes. I know that my sister might be a visionary. My brother might be an empathetic storyteller. Tracy would be somebody that is a weaver and a strategic visionary in ways that we can't kind of really grasp until you're in it. So we all have a part to play. It's just figuring out that part that we play. And that's the work that I do with athletes. Mm. And also, it, it leads into something Tommy Smith also spoke about in terms of, that you talk about in, the, in Real Wins, how self-awareness is such a key component to activism. It is in the work that I do as well. Because you won't understand what your role is and what part you can play unless you are self-aware about your capacity, about your limitations, about where you need to expand knowledge, um, and also about your circle of influence. So there's a huge piece around self-awareness with the work, but also self-awareness about our own position, our own positionality, our own social location, and where we fit within all of this. Um, and I think that that's vital. There was... Yeah, because we all have like we we all have a bit more power and personal agency than we think we do. Yeah, you know, yeah. even that those small things that we can all do. I'm going to stop. Is everybody okay? <laughs> are, are we good? Yeah, am I seeing smiling faces? No, yeah, good. I'm, Nova, I have to just check. You know, it's just a part of who I am. You know, th there it. is that bit of like, can my actual input make a difference? Yeah. And I think in the book, I. I talk about my personal history because it makes a difference mm -hmm. because, you know, as young brown skinned girls, we grew up in an area which was quite tough. It was a wharf road. We're very proud of our South London roots. Mm -hmm. um, but we were, you know, a, a part of the minority there. And I remember, you know, in the 80s, my dad talking to us about apartheid in South Africa yeah. and actually the boycotts that were going on around the goods. And he said, right, we're not going to buy that. You're not going to do this. You're not going to do that. And I was like, oh, my, my actual behavior can make a difference in this moment and I think at that point that's where some of my personal agencies started to think well actually I can I can take some of this and make it mean something and I think that that's really important that we can sometimes underestimate the power that we can have and do have it's it's a it's a combination of underestimating the power that we can and do have and also absolving responsibility depending on who you are, um, that this, oh, someone else can sort that out. This isn't my issue. Um, and that's the opposite of what so many sports stars are role modelling. Like, we all, we all can play a powerful role. And you, there, is, there is that sac sacrifice, and it's wanting to serve something that is greater. And it's not for everyone, right? You know, and it's not for everybody, and that's okay. You know, when people say to me, don't you think that athletes should stand up for this and stand up for that? And I'm like, well, it's a personal choice. Mm. It's linked to who they are in their individuality and their identity. Mm. And we can't demonise them for choosing their own well-being. Exactly, exactly. Um, you talk about values and activism, I, which I really love, in terms of, like, figuring out, and it feels, it's, it's coaching, really, isn't it, this element, like, figuring out what your values are and whether your behaviour and your activism is in alignment with those values. Can you share a little bit more about that? Well, I think 
the work around values is important because I, in the book I use the example of Marcus Rashford. He's got that lived experience of coming from a background where he didn't have access to funds and so therefore the activism that he did in, in lots of ways was related to making sure that young people could eat during during those school holidays and, you know, for an athlete in this country, that has never happened before. You know, an athlete has made sure, has enabled gov government to do a U-turn yeah. on social policy and create a whole new uh, kind of space, really, for that to happen in the future. And so for him, that was really important because it was a part of who he was and, and represented a part of his identity. So the values piece, though was really about you know, the, some of the environments that I think we can all relate to sometimes. We might be in a work environment that doesn't align with who we are as individuals. I know I worked in one for a long, long time, mm. but actually our, my values in that space became something that, the, that I could hang on to, that were my anchor, that actually I was demonstrating them by the work and the choices that I was making. And people were really clear. Oh, we won't want to invite Michelle Moore in because she's, she's just going to give us our time or, you know, she's going to ask us difficult questions that we haven't thought about. And so your, my values would absolutely arrive in the room before me. And mm. I'm like, that, I'm fine with that. You know what? That's great because then we can kind of, and I know you can identify with yeah. this, but, it, but it's a shortcut, isn't it? And yeah. I think, you know, I talk to leaders all the time. Okay, you say that you are really serious about tackling racial inequality. Let me see your ethnicity and your gender pay gap and where they overlap. Yep. Let's have a look then. Let's interrogate that data. Let's look at how you're creating outcomes from that. Give me some examples. Mm -hmm. And then it's, you know, it's strategic talk. And I, you know, we, we know that that's a part of how we can start to dismantle the system if we start to really look yep. carefully at the outcomes and, and the data. And that's the thing. You have to individually and collectively within these org organisations you have to have to look at the tough stuff. How are, you going to, how are you going to improve, expand, transform if you can't even look at what the issue is? Um, and that's a key component you know, to change and transformation is uh, looking at the parts that aren't pretty. Um, I love, you mentioned it earlier, but I want to poke around in it a bit more about, about failure, the, very, you know, the nature of your journey as an athlete and your journey as a leadership coach and your journey to writing a book. Um, there were so many moments like, oh, I'm hearing myself. Oh, no, that's, that's Dean. Dean's amazing. Oh. He's probably doing some footage for me. <laughs> um, but the, 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 the piece around not to be defeated by one loss, because all of us have experienced failure in some way multiple times and we will continue there's such there's such a powerful message in not being defeated by one loss and that our losses do not define us can you share more about that yeah i mean i love talking about failure because people don't expect me to talk about it and i i often describe myself as a failed athlete and people would come up to me afterwards and yeah. whisper you can't say that you mustn't say that and i'm like well actually I didn't make it to the international standards that I wanted to. Mm. Right? So in my head, I had failed at that. But I don't see failure as this really negative thing. I see it as a part of my growth. Yes. And I was, you know, I, athletics was that place where it was so identity affirming. I loved it because I was around black and brown athletes. And there were yeah. a few white athletes there. But it's where we were excelling. We were just, there was so much joy and there was so much love in my athletics. It was the first place where I felt at home, mm. right? And it was just cool. I mean, there were some good looking brothers in, in my athletics training group as well. <laughs> it was great, man. But in, in all seriousness, it was one of those places that it taught me about how to deal with loss. And because it gave me such joy and was so connected with my identity, I would cry regularly when I lost a race, yeah. right? Because it was, it was exacerbated by the fact that I'd, been, I'd lost and I'd been beaten, but it gave me such joy. Yeah. And it developed this resilience where I was able to kind of, well, if I've lost then, but I'm still going to be training three, four times a week because I might win then and there might be an opportunity there. And it was the, the power of the mindset that really kind of changed my 
I think, changed how I developed and grew as a young person. And I was, I was failing all over the place. I wasn't the most academically gifted young person. I failed at my maths GCSE three times. I scraped my A-levels, scraped getting into university because I was a decent athlete and, you know, all of those things. And then, you know, I found my driving test five times. I talk about this a lot with young people. And then I just, I developed that understanding that it's just the route to success. Yes. It's just the way in which we decide to find a different way to define success for ourselves. And, you know, through life, we, we develop our systemic resilience, right? So through the, the difficult times in life, you develop the coping strategies that get you through those times. And then the other, on the other hand of that, it, life then reveals to you your strengths, right? Mm -hmm. And through that is where you then get to develop and define and transform your future based on that resilience. And that comes down to the setbacks that we all have in, in, in our lives. And I got to that point where I was like, well, what's the lesson here? Let me ask myself more affirming questions when I'm in that space. Mm. And it's about what is this moment trying to teach me? Mm. And if you don't get the lesson, it then comes back to you again and again. I should never have worked with that particular person because it's gone into a nightmare. I should have never gone out with that fella or that woman. You know, you know the lessons that you learn from your failures are there to teach you to go forward yes. in a different direction. And there are so many times when we can just become so subsumed with the loss. And actually what we have to do is find it within ourselves to confront the fear of, of, the, lo of the potential loss yes. and like... What's the worst that can happen? Can I really handle it? Mm. Can I handle it if I come tonight and there's three people in the room mm. and there's five people online mm. and we just have a powerful conversation and that's it? I'm like, yeah, I can handle yeah. that. You know? So the worst case scenario, can I handle it if I don't get into that GB squad? At the time, it was like, oh. Yeah. But could I handle it? Yes. And yes. so then you develop that self-efficacy that you've been there before and that you can go there again. And then there are those moments when you're really in your kind of out of your comfort zone and then life reveals to you the strength that you didn't even know that you had. Yeah. And that's when you get to see real transformation. And that's why I've written a book. Um, and you do it so brilliantly. Um, and also there's something in there around <coughs> learning to process grief as well so that we transform and transcend. Um, yeah. Yeah, that perfect segue. I know you wanted to talk about ancestral legacy um, and this, the, the piece, at the epilogue, I guess, at the end of your book, um, where you're expressing something to your grandmother, really, was incredibly moving and beautiful. And I wanted to ask you if you wanted to share some more thoughts about ancestral legacy in general. Um, yeah, I mean, it's such a... I mean, when we look back on our lives and we think about the people that have had an impact on us, and my gran... She came here in 1958, my paternal grandma, from Guyana with three children, one suitcase, and, and she lived a life so that, of, that we could have every opportunity, you know, so she sacrificed, she toiled, her, her life was of service, she was a nurse, and our, our, our family is full of lots of inspirational women. Um, uh, yeah, my dad's on the call uh, online. Yeah, there's some inspirational people, fe fellas in the, the story as well. But, uh, and my mum's incredible. But the, the fact is, is that her, her journey touched me in ways that I don't even realise. Mm. And when I was writing this book, I realised in all kinds of ways that the, the paths that we choose to, to tread are often laid before us. And, you know, stepping up and being in spaces where I am visible mm. is really important because this isn't anything my, that my gran would have necessarily expected. I don't think she would have been surprised. Yes. But... It's an, you know, it's, I pay tribute to her as my, as my grandma and I've dedicated the book to her and to my, my granddad on my, my mum's side and in loving memory to a close friend of mine, Yvonne, because they live on in me. And I mm. think that, you know, when you talk about grief, actually, I carry their spirit with me I, and I talk about them in the work that I do because I want to share who they are and what they're about. Yeah. I was literally the other day, as a teacher, you know, back in the day as a teacher, I was stopped in the petrol station by a young man that said, Miss Miss, do you remember me? Miss Miss, Miss Moore. And I was like, of course, I do not remember him. But I was like, yeah, yeah, of course I remember you. <laughs> and, um, 
and he said, did you remember that assembly that you did? I mean, this is like nearly 25 years wow. ago, like a long time ago. And it was when you put your black grandma up there and your white granddad, do you remember? And you talked about being black and talked about being mixed. And I was like, look at that, look at that. And then he started to have a long conversation with me about Black Lives Matter. Um, <laughs> but there are things that we do in our lives that we realise that actually this is, this, there's a purpose here. Mm. And actually this is, this is my grand coming. And, and I felt like that, that spoken word piece, that poem that I did, I would never have said that I was going to do a spoken word piece. Like, who am I to write poetry? Um, and my mate Tracy Sage helped me with it. Um, and I, I really got in touch with th that legacy of oppression, yeah. the, the nature of what she would have had to have gone through. And therefore, I owe it to her and I owe it to myself to rinse everything out of every opportunity that's given to me, mm. you know. So, and I, people are like, why do, you know, you, why do you want that? And I'm like, well, why not? Like, mm. actually, I'm not going to be penalised for, for having ambition, yes. for wanting to stand in this light, because I know the ripple effect that it can have, yeah. um, because I know how it's affected me. So her spirit lives on in all kinds of ways, and I am uh, truly thankful uh, that I am her granddaughter. Oh, beautiful. That's legacy. Thank you for sharing that, Michelle. I appreciate it. There's, um, I'm mindful of time. I've got a million questions on here, so I'm going to pick a, pick a couple. There's, there's, there's such a big piece around hope with activism and um, encouraging or fostering a, generation's, a generation of leaders who are more con conscious that we need to transcend and move us forward. Um, and I mentioned before, we, in order for us to, to do this work, to be activists, to be anti-racist, we have to imagine something that isn't currently, it isn't there. We need to imagine something that isn't there. So it requires a lot of hope and imagination. Can you, and you talk about this in terms of a winner's mentality, so it's what I picked up on earlier with Jeanette and the visualising and the writing down that she's going to break this record and the billboard for you. Can you share more about what having this winner's mentality means to you and how it's vital in activism? Yeah, I think one of the things that I talk about in the book is kind of letting go of your attachment to the outcome. Yeah. And it's something that I learned early on around I'm going to make the contribution that I'm going to make. And then whatever happens after that point is whatever happens. Yeah. So I have to be really congruent with the values that I've got and the, the part that I play. And then that's all that I can control, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the bit of the process that I get to, to, to flex with as much as possible and to bring the authentic Michelle to the table. And I've had to learn that over, over time and experience. But to me, it's a liberating experience. Yeah. It's like, well, actually, I cannot necessarily change this person's mind about X. But what I can do is powerfully show them and demonstrate to them the impact that I think something might have. Mm. Um, and yeah, I do it in all kinds of ways. It was a, there's a story in the book about how I supported my brother with an interview process. You know, actually he couldn't, although he's very charming and good looking and people really like him, he couldn't determine whether or not the interview panelists were gonna like him, he couldn't. Mm. But what he could do is turn up and make sure that his values were aligned with his passion, with his expertise, and articulating that in the best way possible. And that's it. And if they wanted him, great. If they didn't, they're lost, right? And I talk to people all the time about being present. So the work that I do as a coach and as a mentor, I think is pretty successful mm. because I turn up mm. and I am truly present to that person and wanting to serve up a powerful conversation for them and look and invested in their growth and in a way that I think it supports them to liberate themselves mm -hmm. from, you know what, what would you do if you had no fear? Let's mm. just play it out. Mm -hmm. Let's play out that scenario and release yourself from the attachment to whatever's going to happen in the future. Yeah. I mean, that speaks to the collective and what I describe anti-racism as collective healing, because why wouldn't you want everyone to live in their full humanity? Why wouldn't you want to be invested in people? 
so that, can, that they can live without fear. Because us being in our, our full selves and being liberated liberates other people Absolutely. and inspires other people. And it means that we can show up more fully, we can innovate, we can create, we can come up with ideas, we can hold boundaries and just show up in a very different way. And it's like what Angela Davis talks about. You know, she talks about this idea that we become more leaderful in what we do. Yeah, right. now, how can we all become more leaderful in, and kind of really just full up with playing to our strengths, right? Mm. And that's what the world needs. It needs more of us. My favourite track yeah. is More of You by Emily Sandé. <laughs> more of you in the world to, to show up in your best kind of version of yourself, as cliche as that may sound. And I take Angela Davis's work as, you know, academic yeah. civil rights campaigner and uh, amazing woman really seriously. And she's got that quote about, I'm no longer mm. changing the things I cannot accept. I'm changing, I'm, I'm no longer changing things I cannot, I'm changing things I cannot accept. I know I may, I may have butchered that. It's right. But uh, it's that, and I, <laughs> I change it to, I'm trying to change the things I cannot accept. Yeah. That's the bit, and yeah. that's the bit I think that gives me hope. I mean, you know, I'm not somebody that would necessarily have had a billboard before. I'm not necessarily somebody that would have had the, the opportunities that I have had in my life, meeting amazing dignitaries, create, you know, being involved in, in you know, advisory strategic work that I'm doing now, the commissioning work that I'm doing, all kinds of things, the invisible stuff that is not yeah. seen. You know, I'm making my presence heard and mm. I'm being a positive disruptor in ways that may be visible, may be invisible, but I know I'm making my contribution. Yeah, powerful. There's one thing you say in your book about being impatient for change, which I love. I'm so over <laughs> I it. I love, I love. Um, so what does, you know, what does, in, in, in a space where we are, I say I am demanding people be anti-racist, because what I mean by anti-racism is living in your full humanity and treating every single human being with basic dignity and respect and healing there's nothing about racism that was about love it's the opposite and so how we reclaim and rehumanize one another so i say i'm demanding it so when you talk about being in, impatient for change i also love that you talk about attitudinal change is just going to have to catch up <laughs> <laughs> what does conscious leader what does conscious leadership look like what are the qualities that leaders need in 2022 yeah i i talk about the fact that you know what we need are people that are more empathetic, mm. that have a, a, a understanding of what compassion looks like, that has a willingness to, to step into somebody else's shoes, but not in a kind of cliche way, in a way that's real and meaningful and yeah. authentic, that, that owns their vulnerabilities, that owns up to the fact that this is difficult stuff, this is challenging, right? Are you prepared to go on that journey? And some of the work that I've done is about trusting in the advisors and the people that are you know, giving you the, the intelligence. Like, this is, this is one of the... Tr believe black people when they say. Yes. Believe brown people when they say. This is the reality of it. And so conscious leadership is, is full of accountability, is full of understanding that you may not have all of the answers and that as a leader, we have to be OK with being vulnerable in that space. I mean, I've got stories in the book where, you know, as a leader, I wasn't the best leader. So I think I can talk about yeah. leadership because I was not a very good manager at one point. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't great. I was, I'd taken my sports mindset, my high-performance high mindset into an environment where it didn't work. People were like, I, I'm not going to do that. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> and, and, you know, I had to really do a 365-degree turn on, on my own leadership journey and become much more collaborate, collaborative, much more collegiate. I had to give up power. People yes. are not used to doing that. They don't want to do that. I had to share responsibility. I had to send people to meetings instead of me. I had to invest in people's personal growth. You know, and it wasn't something that I was doing automatically, but then, you know, life kicks you, and I had a series of consecutive grief um, over a number of years that, that really changed me as an individual mm. and, and made me much more compassionate and much more open and then willing to stand in somebody else's shoes. I remember as a, as a head of a service and a leader, I had decided to go and do my project support officer's role for two weeks, and, and it was really hard, and, but I was prepared to step into somebody else's shoes, and it gave me so much credibility. I got so much respect from doing that, and it was a brilliant thing to do. 
and I was able to campaign for people in a different way. Mm. And I just don't think we have that kind of conscious leadership no. today in this ever-changing global community. We need people that are in touch with their humanity. Yep. We need people that understand their emotional intelligence. And conscious leadership is, I think, us all being more conscious of the leadership decisions that we make every day because we're all leaders. Mm. You know, and sometimes the leaders of organisations are not the people with the most power. Mm. Um, so I've seen that the entry-level employee has all of this credibility in a way that perhaps the leader doesn't. So we need more conscious leaders. Nova, can you make it, it happen, please? It, please. <laughs> it requires courage, though, as well. And also, you know, for so many of us, we've been programmed to be one person at work and one person at home. And for some of us, that is a method of survival and protecting one's mental, and mental well-being. But, you know, it, it's, we have to lose that armour. And accountability isn't often role-modelled in society. It's certainly not role-modelled in government. But that is what is required and, you know, much like some of the people you speak about in the book and the Tommy Smith of the world, you have to, there has to be the will um, and ego needs to be dropped. Um, I'm aware of time, I'm going to ask one more question and I will uh, see if we've got any that have been pre-submitted. Um, but just to wrap up where we've been going with how we can all become activists and I love how you talk about the small acts and it's this tiny tiny chipping away that each of us having the will having the desire and being conscious and intentional with our actions can chip away at something um, how do people in this room figure out what their role is in this yes read the book buy the book <laughs> <laughs> of course yeah I mean um, one of the things well, the analogy that I use is the small acts and it was um, yes Bob Marley's song that was released in the year of my birth in 1973. And um, he talks about the small acts and the big tree. And the small acts representing the people power and unity and the big tree representing tyranny. And actually the greater good and where does the greater good lie. And I use that as a, as a kind of metaphor to talk about all of those massive cases that happened in our history from the mangrove nine to mm. dorian lawrence and the way in which they have taken their power that may seem really really small and held it up and used it in ways that has had a big impact on society and i believe that we all can find that within ourselves if we tap into our own leadership potential if we tap into wanting to get the most out of ourselves in terms of our own self-leadership journeys and that's everything that I talked about in terms of how we process failure to how we define our unique contribution to the world and how we figure out the part that we have to play and actually it's not up for argument like that's the thing yeah. that's going to make the change in the world for all of us as we step up for ourselves and then it enables us to step up for others powerful thank you very much Michelle um I've got some questions for you. Oh, we've got some pre-submitted. We have. Um, oh, nice. There's a few, I'm just, I just need to read and process first before I read them out loud. Okay. Everybody all right in the room? Yeah. Thank you all for joining us and interacting <coughs> online as well. Um, there's some great questions that have come through. So how do we create more radical, oh, gosh. liberated, interdependent, imaginative who's asked this question grief, how many words they got going on slash joyful regenerative i've forgotten anti-ableist anti-racist accessible ways to success that center disabled black indigenous people of color it's a big question so i guess how do we make our activism more intersectional that center it's people who sit in, in, yeah. in disabled and identities and black It's such an important point. You yeah. know, I was being glib at the beginning, but it obviously went on as well. But the, the reality is, is what I've written about in the book is from my perspective as a black woman, right? Mm. But it's all the intersections that go with that oppression. And actually, with all the different kinds of oppression that are out there, and actually, if you are from a marginalised identity, you, there are similarities to our struggles. There's no doubt about it. But... In terms of how we find our way through that and what the, the radical solutions are, it has to start with a deep knowing and a deep understanding from those leaders that they 
are aware of the realities, that they become more shame resilient, that they actually understand that they have to acknowledge their, their, their weaknesses. And that is very difficult. We know Ibrim X. Kendi talks about mm. the biggest issue is, is racism deniers, right? Yeah. No, no, we don't have any racism here. We're gonna, we've got an equality and diversity panel, a policy, we're, we've got an advisory group, we're all good. And actually, you know, how do we as individuals and how this person who's, uh, you know, a great question, find it within themselves to develop their resilience to be able to cope with those spaces is, is a challenge. But there's so much joy to be had from a fellowship, from finding your kinship, from finding those people that you can work with, that do understand. And sometimes that's not necessarily in the spaces that you might anticipate yes. it being. So uh, a bit of an answer to a very deep question. Yeah. But I respect it, and I'm really glad that it was asked. Yes, thank you. Um, what action-orientated things can organisations do to foster inclusion? OK, so I think they should read the book. <laughs> they should read The Good Ally by Nova Reed. Um, and they should show a willingness to actually do more than the performative action that we see of mm. a black square, a vision statement. If you want to move beyond the diversity rhetoric, then you have to actually become very serious about this. You have to get the right people in. You have to look at it how you might look at another business objective. Let me identify the resource. Let me allocate funding. Let me look at the training and the development program. Let me put some KPIs in this. Let me align this to people's personal development plans in their work programs and let me hold them to account. I'm not going to go into it. It's, on the, it's online. But, you know, that's the nature of what I would say. And also that, that question in itself suggests that it can be answered with a tick box and yeah. that's that's not what this work is so um you know my work is all around being self-aware and self-interrogating so i would ask the person who asked that question to really think about what's the intention behind that um and this is big work yeah and i'm often on um talks and they say what are your three takeaways and i said i'm not that person i'm not the one and I talk about the attitudes that need to change, but actually the actions need to come first. And I haven't got time to wait for you to the four or five years that you're asking me to in terms of the culture change that needs yeah. to happen. Culture is made up of people. Yes. You make individual choices. Change is intensely personal. So let's get on with it. Yeah, That's it why I'm impatient. Us, for sure. So let's get to some nice ones. Uh, <laughs> I told you about Q&A's nice. Um, All right, I told you so. <laughs> No, I respect the question, but, you know, that, those are my answers. Yeah, of course, and, and, and those are your answers. Hmm. Someone's asked about the Oscars. You want to go there or not? I'm, I'm all good. Yeah. <laughs> no, is the answer. Um, I'm going to bring it back to... I'm going to bring it back to us. That's a good, good um, idea. Because there, there, is, there isn't any more that I think, um, I think we can, I'm bringing it back to us. Um, I mean, one of the things that I talked about in the book, oh, oh. We weren't. No, we weren't, were we? We weren't, it's pre-submitted only. It is pre-submitted only. Is it a really nice question? Gonna, she's going to get a mic. Oh, she's going to get a mic. Okay, we'll do one question yeah. and then we'll wrap it up. I feel like it's going to be a good one. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> you, what's your name? Hi, Bernard. Bernard. Thank you. Uh, the question is, when do you think your work will be done? Mm. Oh, great ah. question. Thank you so much. I felt it. I felt it would be good. It's not, it's not, it's lifelong, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I'm... I really, I've made some magnificent mistakes in my life mm. and I will continue to make them and I will continue to learn from them and I'll continue to grow and that's all that I can ask of myself and by being authentically who I am in the world creates opportunities that I would never have thought that I would have had and so the work is in the book, it's a start and it's about how I can make that something that impacts on lots of people and 
you know, some of the young mentees that I have that follow me take such inspiration from me being on stages. They feel as if they're on those stages as well. And so that's really important that we get to, to share the success. And I'm really, really, like, really inspired by that and really inspired by the friends that are in my life, the support that I have from my family and the people and the followers online uh, show me a, a lot of love. And they're really invested in me winning. And I love to win. And I'm not just winning for myself. I see it as I'm winning for them as well because all of our success is interconnected. Mm. So wonderful question. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, time is flying. And, you know, Michelle, you and I could... We could chew on this for ages and um, be in this room all evening. But there were, some, there were a couple of tidbits that I just want to pick out. Um, and one of the things you wrote in Real Wins is about start before you're ready. Start the work before you feel like you're ready. And uh, be a good troublemaker. This is, this is my favourite one. Um, do you, would you like to share more about that or any final words to leave people tuning in online and in this room with? Thanks so much, Nova. It's been great. I mean, I think the thing, the thing about the starting before you're ready is... People often ask me, like, Michelle, what's the secret to success? What's the secret to, like, leadership? And can you, can you bottle the confidence and can you give it to me? And I'm like, there's mm. no big secret. Like, there, there, there are no big secrets here. It's about the journey that you're prepared to go on. Yeah. And actually, I'm just as nervous about the same things that you get nervous about. But I've decided that I'm going to take action and continue to take action whilst I'm managing that fear. Because the world needs more of us being more of ourselves in the world. And if we can do that, if we can channel that mindset, then actually it creates all kinds of opportunities that we just didn't even realize that were available to us and open to us. And I'm honoring the legacy of my grandparents and making sure that I'm rinsing every opportunity I can out of the track and out of this lifetime. Beautiful way to end. Um, thank you all so much for coming and being present virtually and here in the room with us. It's been absolutely incredible to have you all with us. Um, thank you, RSA House, for hosting us this evening. Um, a gentle reminder that Michelle and I will be outside signing books, so you can buy a copy of Real Wins outside if you haven't already got one. And finally... Michelle Moore, thank you for all you do and all that you are and for inviting me to share the stage with you this evening. Um, you're incredible. Thank you, Nova. Nova's been amazing. Thank you so much to everybody that's come this evening. It's, it's a real joy to see so many of you in the room. I really appreciate it. And thanks to Marai from the RSA making my vision a reality. And I, I, I'm truly honoured that you decided to spend time with me this evening, people. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.